we're going to be talking about calcium oxalate stones because they are more common, like the most common one. So the most common issue when it comes to kidney stones has to do with mold and yeast, mold and yeast, mold and yeast, mold and yeast, because that makes people dump oxalates and these stones are made up of oxalates. These are the main cause. How can a ketogenic diet cause this? Well, you've heard me talk about how a ketogenic diet can feed candida. So you go on this diet, you already know you're filled with yeast and now you just give that yeast a yum yum buffet of delicious ketones and it triggers the creation of the calcium oxalate stones. Hey, my name is Leanne Vogel. I'm fascinated with helping women navigate how to eat, move, and care for their bodies using a low-carb diet. I'm a small-town holistic nutritionist turned three-time international best-selling author turned functional medicine practitioner, offering telemedicine services around the globe to women looking to better their health and stop second-guessing themselves. I'm here to teach you how to wade through the wellness noise to get to the good stuff that'll help you achieve your goals. We're supporting your low-carb life beyond the if-it-fits-your-macros conversation. Hormones, emotions, relationship to your body, workouts, letdowns, motivation, blood work, detoxing, metabolism. I'm providing the tools to put your motivation into action. Think of it like quality time with your bestie mixed with a little med school so you're empowered at your next doctor visit. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while you learn about your body and how to care for it better. This is the Keto Diet Podcast. We are going to be covering a whole bunch. In fact, my laptop is currently at 61%. We're going to go until 10%, baby. So today's a Q&A episode. We are going to be talking about enemas, adrenals. We're going to be talking about uh, glucose and whether or not to go keto when it's appropriate, kidney stones, liver flushes, what to do on carnivore if your glucose is dipping down too low, cleansing, nodules on your thyroid, hormone regulation, parasites, SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, and a whole bunch more. We'll see how much we can get through. Let's just get started right now. Starting with enemas, my favorite topic. I love me an enema. So let's talk about it. First, there's types of enemas. You can remineralize yourself with enemas. You can detox yourself with enemas. You can actually bind things from your gut with enemas. You can also do plasma enemas, your own urine. I've never done it. I've never guided anyone through it, but it does exist. So when we when we talk about enemas, there are a bunch of different ways that we can do them, obviously. I really like starting off with using water-only enemas and moving up to coffee enemas to really help strengthen that enterohepatic detoxification through the body. So this is a pretty, I would say, advanced stage of detoxification. I would say out of 100 clients, maybe three to five of them are doing coffee enemas. It's not for the faint of heart. Even talking about sticking stuff up your butt may not be your cup of tea. And I understand, or your cup of coffee, I guess I should say, (laughs) might not be your thing. You might get all heebie-jeebie about it. You might have already turned off today's episode. So it's not for everybody. 
and I go through phases in my life where I do them and then I don't feel like they're necessary. So usually in most cases, once a week is all you need when it comes to coffee enemas. If you're doing a parasite or candida cleanse or you need to clear the bowels more regularly, perhaps you're doing more. But I would generally say that one, maybe two actual coffee enemas a week is plenty. And then perhaps you're weaving in some actual water enemas. But the big thing you need to ask yourself is why am I doing the enema? If you become too reliant on enemas to keep yourself regular, not overly suggested, okay? But it can be really, really helpful for overall detoxification. So one of the questions was, I've heard that you have to brew the coffee in a coffee enema, but I like to use King Coffee because it's easy. So brewing can help the detoxification strength of the enema, but it's such a small amount. And using something like King Coffee from Organo, you can find out more details about Organo and their options by going to healthfulpursuit.com slash spore. So this is the coffee that my husband drinks. It's the coffee that I use for enemas. I don't drink it because I'm very, very, very sensitive to caffeine. And there's no way that I could ever, ever drink a King Coffee or any kind of coffee and be okay. But we can do coffee enemas for all of those who are sensitive to coffee themselves. So yes, is brewed coffee a tiny bit better for enemas? Definitely. But the fact that you have to boil the water, then add the coffee for three minutes, then you got to cool the water. Like I do not have enough time. I am lucky if I have 15 minutes to dedicate to an enema. So yeah, just not going to do it. So if you're just not going to do it, then I would go with King Coffee, right? Because just the process itself of infusing for 10 minutes, covering the container, then allowing it to cool to like body temperature, testing that like it just it's just too much for this girl. So I hope that answers your question. In line with enemas. Also, there was a question about mucoid plaque. Okay, so mucoid plaque is kind of a difficult topic because it's one of those things just like liver detoxification that allopathic doctors say that there's no proof that mucoid plaque exists. I've seen it. I've seen so many pictures of client bowel movements. You have no idea. I get so many poop pictures. I'm very comfortable with this at this point. I have seen a significant amount of mucoid plaque Really, the best way to move forward with this is to continue with your drainage pathway work, really focusing if you find yourself gravitating toward enemas, keep it up. When we're taking something like mimosa pudica, for example, which is used quite often in parasite protocols, it can resemble something like mucoid plaque when it's coming out of the body. And so be wary of that also if you're taking mimosa pudica and all of a sudden you start seeing mucoid plaque, it could actually be the mimosa pudica because it's quite sticky and it will literally like, it's like Drano, right? It just sticks to a lot of things and clears out the gut real nice. So that could be what you're seeing. But generally, if I see mucoid plaque in a client who we are working through these drainage pathways, we're getting their liver moving, we're getting their gut moving, we're helping their detoxification, we're balancing out their minerals, it's quite common to see mucoid plaque as part of the things that they're releasing. And that usually goes away with proper uh, diet lifestyle factors. 
Okay, next question. Taking adrenal support for adrenal fatigue and feeling great. Yes, that's awesome. Congratulations. Is there a deeper root cause to this that I should be looking at? I love this question. So yes and no. A lot of this has to do with lifestyle factors. So you have to ask yourself, how did you get into this adrenal conundrum? Have you been super stressed? Have you uh, ran your HRV to kind of see where that's at? In fact, I did an episode quite recently about nervous system dysregulation. Um, It was from June 27th, episode 427, called How to Correct an Acute Stress Response. I'd head on over there and learn some stuff about HRV and pulse and just like where you're at with that. If you went through a significant amount of stress, then it could just be you're massively stressed out and you need to make significant lifestyle shifts. If all you're doing is taking an adrenal support supplement and your life is exactly the same, it's not going to be overly effective long term and you're just going to get back to where you were. So it's good to look at parasympathetic work. It's good to look at vagus nerve exercises. It's good to look look at blood sugar management, self-care, soothing, oxytocin boosts by having, you know, people in your life that you love having intimate relations with your husband and laughing, going out with friends and connecting all those good oxytocin activities, ensuring adequate micronutrients and diet quality and quantity of food, a big, 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 did I say big? thing that I see with adrenal dysfunction is not eating enough. And really, we have to understand what's behind adrenal dysfunction. Well, it's a dysfunctioning mitochondria. And so a big piece of this is just going to be overall nutrients. And if you're not eating enough, it's going to affect the adrenals. Assessing for thyroid function and overall gut health is a big part of this. The adrenals will go wackadoodle when the gut is sideways, as will they with thyroid. And because thyroid hormones are converted both in the liver and the gut, it's important to kind of check that off too. Um, Limiting caffeine, obviously, if you're like pumping the energy drinks and going to the gym, probably not a great idea. And then if you're not prioritizing sleep, that can be a root cause, including electronic rather exposure. So if you're sitting in bed on your phone until 11 or 1130 or playing games on your phone until you pass out or the phone hits you in the face and then you're asleep, probably not the best choice. Okay, so if you've done all that, and things have not improved, and you're not really sure where to go, then you need to look at some of the root causes beyond that, like parasites can cause issues, heavy metals, chemicals, Lyme and co-infections, all of those things can cause issues. But I would look more at the lifestyle factors that I shared previously, um, because usually, that's a great place to start. Okay, next question. I'm diabetic and I just had a full hysterectomy. Where do I start for best body care and strength? Awesome question. So a full hysterectomy, for those that don't know, is surgery to remove the uterus and the cervix. The ovaries and fallopian tubes may also be removed, but may not be. Okay, so if you're ovaries were removed, it's a very, very different process than if they were not removed. If your ovaries are removed, you're probably going to want to test your hormones pretty quickly and get on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, probably at least 
estrogen and progesterone. If not just progesterone, it'll really depend. Oftentimes I see probably the most common reason for a full hysterectomy usually has to do with excess estrogen driving up these issues to the point where a hysterectomy is then recommended. So my suggestion would be, since your question is really about like, how do I build up strength in the best body care? I would really, 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 really um, look through your old blood work and see if you were ever tested for estrogen. Look for a marker called estradiol and see if that number is above 100. If it's sitting at 150, 200, 250, and perhaps your bilirubin is elevated, alkaline phosphatase is elevated, maybe your ALT, 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 or rather AST is over 20 or 25. That's a good sign that your liver needs some support. And uh, assuming that you still have your gallbladder and you don't have a history of gallbladder issues or any gallbladder stones, it could be beneficial to start supporting your liver directly. And that's something that I would suggest working with a, a practitioner on to fully understand the functioning of your liver. But again, if you got those ovaries out, girl, you got to get on some hormones ASAP because you are not going to feel good. Now, if you were able to keep your ovaries, yay, that is a huge thing. I got to say, like, it would take some catastrophic event for me to be okay with my ovaries coming out of my body, let me tell you. So I hope that that was beneficial eat really well, drink a ton of water and ask yourself, like, how did I get to this point? What were the issues leading up to this full hysterectomy? This is not a delicate or like a overnight decision that you made. Um, this is probably something that has been causing a lot of issues in your life for many, 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 many years. Look at those diagnoses and understand what are the root causes behind that. Because just because you got the organ out doesn't mean that the problem doesn't exist anymore, right? Okay, next question. Are there benefits to low carb versus keto if one doesn't want to be in full ketosis for any reason? Yeah, man, totally. You can do either. I've done either. I've gone back and forth and inside out and up and down and left and right. And there's really like... From a brain functioning perspective, the ketogenic diet beats basically all diets. <laughs> so if I'm doing any events or I have something pretty big coming up, I will always be in ketosis for this because it just feels better. Um, your brain functions better. So when it comes to overall brain function with the ketogenic diet, it's going to win every time. Now we need to understand the difference between keto and low carb. So this will depend on the person, right? We need to get your carbohydrates low enough that you slide into ketosis. This is going to be different for different people. For me, I'm able to slide into ketosis around 50 grams of total carbs. And over the course of a couple of weeks, I'm able to get up to like 100 grams of total carbs or so and stay in a ketogenic state. For somebody who's metabolically damaged or how it looked when I first started the ketogenic diet, when I had to consistently eat 30 grams of total carbs a day, otherwise I wasn't in a state of ketosis, this will change depending on the season you're in, the goals that you have, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of benefits of the ketogenic diet can be realized within the low carb template, but there are some things the ketogenic state just provides like the case of your brain function. Yes, you'll probably have better brain function overall on a low carb diet, especially if you've been eating like 400 grams of carbs and now you've cut it down to 200, you're going to feel better, but you're going to feel way different on the ketogenic diet. Now, 
When it comes to the ketogenic diet, you can also detoxify too strongly, which can cause a whole host of issues. And so if you eat, if you're one of those people and you eat keto and you feel absolutely terrible for way too long, it could be that you're detoxing too much and you need to step back, support your liver and get on some drainage pathway work and binders and those sorts of things. If you're interested in something like that, I do have a root cause group that goes through some of these details. And you can find those details at healthfulpursuit.com slash coaching. And one of the options there is the root cause group coaching. So also when it comes to low carb, it depends, like I mentioned, like kind of where you're coming from. So right now, as I'm recording this podcast episode, I am currently doing a cut. I've gone from 350 grams of carbs per day. Right now I'm at 200 grams of carbs per day. In a couple of weeks, I'll probably be around 100 grams of carbs per day. I'll be pushing ketosis here before the end of the year and using that in my training for a little while. And so do I consider myself low carb now? Now at 200 grams, it certainly feels that way coming from 350. I'm like, oh man, I got to tighten this up. I keep hitting my carb amount before lunch, right? So it's really relative to where you are in your goals, where you're at with your previous eating, if that makes sense. Vitamin C based foods are kind of like severely lacking on the ketogenic diet. It's not impossible to get enough, but it's definitely a challenge. Extreme fatigue, weakness, fluttering heartbeat, shortness of breath, headache, dizziness, or lightheadedness, cold hands, feet, inflammation of your tongue, brittle nails. These are all signs of low iron. And by supplementing with vitamin C, we can actually absorb the iron from all the yummy foods that we're eating on our ketogenic diet. Sitting on the lower end of your normal iron level can deliver some of these symptoms and it isn't pleasant. Coupled with the immune boosting component of vitamin C, you really can't go wrong with this one-two punch in your ketogenic diet. And why Paleo Valley Essential C? Well, it's been third-party lab tested as the most powerful 100% natural vitamin C product on the market today. It contains not one, but three of the most concentrated natural sources of vitamin C, amla berry, camu camu berry, and unripe aceola cherry, the most potent source of natural vitamin C on earth. It's 120 times higher than that found in an orange. Each nutrient-packed serving delivers 750% of your RDI of vitamin C, an amount meant to help you thrive, not just survive. Most other vitamin C supplements are derived from GMO corn and only contain one fraction of the vitamin, ascorbic acid. Paleo Valley Essential C Complex contains the entire spectrum with absolutely no synthetic vitamin C, just organic superfoods. You can head on over to paleovalley.com slash keto for 15% off your order. Again, that's paleovalley.com slash keto. Okay, moving on, we are talking about kidney stones. So uh, the next question is keto and kidney stones. I've known two people that have this. Why does it happen and what's the risk? So we first need to understand what's making your kidney stone the most common source of kidney stone buildup and what they're made up of is going to be calcium oxalates, but it can also be made with uric acid. This is important to understand the composition of the stone because it will really dictate what's going on. We're going to be talking about calcium oxalate stones because they are more common, like the most common one. So the most common issue when it comes to 
kidney stones has to do with mold and yeast, mold and yeast, mold and yeast, mold and yeast, because that makes people dump oxalates. And these stones are made up of oxalates. These are the main cause. How can a ketogenic diet cause this? Well, you've heard me talk about how a ketogenic diet can feed candida. So you go on this diet, you already know you're filled with yeast. And now you just give that yeast a yum yum buffet of delicious ketones, and it triggers the creation of the calcium oxalate stones. So I've seen this time and time again. And so from the last question we talked about in regards to how to know which is best for you, low carb or keto, in this case, I would do more low carb. If you're eating a garbage ketogenic diet or a garbage American standard diet or a garbage vegan diet or a garbage carnivore diet, if you're eating unhealthy non-organic foods, you are susceptible to developing kidney stones and other issues. So it really has to do with food quality also. Like it doesn't like it doesn't matter if you're eating a ketogenic diet and you're eating garbage food. I mean, we've seen this time and time again. That's why I even think in the intro of the keto diet podcast now, I talk about that if it fits your macros idea. Like I can hit my macros and it be total trash garbage, or I can hit my macros and really my number one goal right now is how can I hit 50 grams of fiber consistently daily? And that is hard to do. But if I focus on that, I know that I will be making better choices. And if I'm just like, yeah, willy nilly, let's just have at her and hit my macros, right? So it really, really depends on the food quality gastric bypass and other surgeries, you can be more susceptible to kidney stones, dehydration, not drinking enough on the ketogenic diet, your entire electrolyte balance changes. And if you are not paying attention to this, and you're not drinking water, you're one of those people that doesn't drink water, I don't even know how you function, I would literally die without water, then you're more susceptible to kidney stones, taking too much vitamin C also an issue. So Yeah, those are some of the reasons why I see kidney stones being an issue within the ketogenic diet. Okay, next question has to do with the liver flushes. I love me a liver flush. So the question is, thoughts on liver flushes, olive oil, grapefruit juice, have you done one before? Okay, so you're going to learn something new about Leanne Vogel, and that is I have a terrible liver and not great because of decisions that I made when I was young and stupid, to be honest. And the sheer amount of products that I put in my body, my liver, though it is stronger than it's ever been before, is not overly fantastic. So I have a really big challenge producing enough bile well. And if I were to do a liver flush, it would be absolutely terrible it would probably constipate me for 500 years and I would be absolutely miserable. So for me, a liver flush is a terrible idea, okay? I'm working on this slowly but surely and being super patient. The Lord has given me certain afflictions that I am learning to appreciate and just be patient with. And this is one of those that I just, I can't push hard. And since you asked, have you done one before? The answer is a heck no, 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 no. Okay. But I've guided many a human through a liver flush. I absolutely love this as a resource. It's fantastic. In fact, a big component of my root cause group uses liver flushes as a way to cause a break between different phases as we're working through root causes. So my root cause group starts with an introduction where we're going through um, how to use the program, 
what we're doing with the phases, how to open up drainage, the types of things we're going to be focusing on. Then we work on opening up that drainage. Really think of your body as a sponge, but now it is a brick and we are turning it into a sponge again so that it can release toxins. And then we're going through some parasite work. In between our four-month parasite push, we're doing a liver flush if it responds really well to you and you read everything and you're like, yep, this is totally me. I would love to do a liver flush. This makes a lot of sense. Liver flushes release stuck material in the liver and gallbladder, like toxic, sluggish bile, stones, stored emotions. It lowers reactivity to, to foods and supplements. It improves digestion and nutrient absorption. It boosts energy. It empowers the immune system. If you're dealing with a lot of histamine issues and mast cell activation, liver flushes are awesome. If you don't have a gallbladder, um, you could still do a flush. You just may need to have more prep time. How to know if a liver flush is good for you. If you're doing enemas on an ongoing basis and you feel quite comfortable with them, if you have already done a good amount of opening up drainage and parasite work, if you can tolerate uh, Tudka, that's a really good sign that you're ready for a liver flush. See, I cannot tolerate Tudka. I can't even have a sprinkle of Tudka and it will constipate me beyond anything else and I'll have a lot of liver issues. And so I know that this is just not right for me right now. Of course, you'll never want to do a liver flush if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. And you really want to be familiar with tools to regulate your nervous system. Because like I mentioned, this is also a very big emotional release. And so it's important to like know how to handle the emotions that can come up when you're doing this. So yeah, this is part of my root cause group. We go through it a couple times throughout the process. The first time is in between the parasite killing. The next time is right before we do a deep mold process. And then the following time is right before we get into co-infections, as well as like deeper metals and chemicals and all the processes that we do there. So yes, I guide our members through this on a monthly basis within the root cause group. So if you're looking for kind of that ongoing support, you can go to healthfulpursuit.com slash coaching and choose the group option. And I can guide you through all of the liver flushes you would like to do. Okay, next question. Say somebody is on carnivore and their glucose keeps dipping very, very low. What to do? Okay, I am not a carnivore guru whatsoever. I know very, very little about the carnivore diet. I don't know the answer to this question. And I am very comfortable saying this. I would say if this were me and I was eating carnivore and my glucose was super, super low, I'd probably start eating carbohydrates. (laughs) That's just me. I would probably first, I, I do have a couple carnivore friends and I know that they eat honey. And so I'd probably do honey and see if that could kind of regulate things. But I mean, that's not overly safe. Best to default to like a brilliant brain like Judy Cho. She's been on the show a couple times. She's really smart. She probably has something to say about that. But I would eat carbs. And I'm not afraid of doing that if my body's telling me I need them. Okay, next question is, I was recently diagnosed with nodules on my thyroid via a scan. I'm waiting for a call with the endo appointment. What's your holistic view on this? Okay, this is a bigger conversation. I'm going to try to keep it relatively light. 
and just talk about iodine deficiency lightly. So this is where the hair tissue mineral analysis comes in. I love me a hair tissue mineral analysis. I am so bummed that I waited this long to love this test. Seriously, I was so against it for so long and it was such a mistake because this test is awesome. So the hair tissue mineral analysis is fantastic. I use the one from Trace Elements and you can determine an iodine deficiency with a hair tissue mineral analysis using a couple of markers like lithium, potassium, calcium as indirect markers. It's pretty dang accurate. You can also look at your Dutch test and the relationship between the different estrogens. You can also look at your thyroid markers and kind of see what's going on with the thyroid. I talk about this in my blood work course, which you can find at uh, healthfulpursuit.com slash bloodwork. Yes, that's what it is. Healthfulpursuit.com slash bloodwork. So yeah, there are many ways to determine whether or not you have an iodine deficiency. Oftentimes I've seen that nodules have a strong correlation with iodine deficiency, uh, ways to know that you might be iodine deficient and kind of what common conditions relate to iodine deficiency include the nodules, uh, fibroids, endometriosis, estrogen dominance, fibrocystic breast disease, ovarian cysts, uh, breast cysts, breast cancer, hypothyroid, hyperthyroid, thyroid cancer, thyroid cysts, the nodules we talked about, Graves' disease, Hashimoto's. There's a couple of really good books on this, Iodine and Why You Need It and The Iodine Crisis. I would say out of 100 clients, probably 40 of them are on iodine. So it's a pretty significant amount and it's a massive need across the board. But I would highly, highly, highly urge you not to just go out and throw yourself on iodine because it you will feel terrible. I really, really strongly encourage you to work with somebody on introducing iodine properly because it can feel not so good. I did this to myself. It was terrible. I was just curious, like, how bad can it be? It's actually so bad. Like, don't do it. Okay, so yeah, dig a little deeper. I gave you some resources there. The Iodine Crisis is by Lynn Farrow. And Iodine, Why You Need It is by David Brownstein, Brownstein, I believe. Um, so those are two really good books on that. But yeah, I would definitely, definitely, definitely look at iodine before anything else. Okay, next question. I'm on day 23 into a 30-day cleanse. How long should there be before another? <laughs> I'm going to be really cheeky here and say, never do a cleanse again. <laughs> I don't know what kind of cleanse you're doing. So it could be like a whole 30, which I really like, especially as it relates to just overall relationship to food situation. I don't super love cleanses because usually what it means is after your 30 days, you're just going to go back to the way you ate before and the way you ate before caused you to go on a cleanse. And so my suggestion to you would just be like, get your diet and life to a point where it's like an ongoing consistent thing. So I hope that didn't make you upset. <laughs> okay, uh, next question. Do you wear an aura ring? I think so. What are your thoughts? <laughs> As I look at the aura ring on my hand, I would never buy this again. I would not recommend that somebody buy this. Clearly, I was not paid to say this. <laughs> so I follow a like educator practitioner and she loves her aura ring. And I was like, I really trust her. She's taught me a lot. And so I was like, I'm gonna get myself an aura ring. I'm gonna drop $600. I had to get the payment plan because $600 for a ring. Are you kidding me? And I got the ring. Their customer service is legit the worst. I don't know of many customer service 
groups that are as bad as Aura Ring. Um, if you've had a great experience with them, congratulations. I have not. And I've been quite vocal about this. <laughs> and I've had a lot of you say, me too, me too, me too. They suck. And so I'm not alone in this. But if you've had a great experience, congratulations. That's awesome. I wouldn't buy it again just because it's way too much money for what you get. Also, I didn't know that it didn't really track your workouts. The reason why I purchased it is because they were quite clear that it tracks steps, which it just doesn't. It says that it tracks steps, but I have done so many tests. I have worked with over 30 clients checking their aura rings to their step counters on their phone. It does not correlate at all. And so you cannot at all use a step counter on your ring for any sort of step goal at all. Okay. So the equivalent, what I've determined for myself and most clients is that let's say your goal for steps is 10,000. When you hit 10,000 steps, like actual steps throughout the day, your aura ring will say anywhere between 13,000 to 15,000. So it's off, like it's significantly off. The calorie counting tracking is just they I think they just come up with numbers. Um, like It's just random. What I will say is that I really, really liked when I was having that nervous system freak out a while back in May, the ring was really good at showing me that I was a mess. So like that was good. So there's that I, I suppose that if being as balanced as I am now, it's nice to have a device that tells me when I'm not okay. And I appreciated that of it. But I didn't purchase it for that. So I'm kind of disappointed. And their customer service is terrible, like I mentioned. And so just like spending $600 on something that now I have a ongoing fee for to just save the data just is so much money. But again, it's cheaper than a My Fitness Pal monthly subscription, which I think what is it like $40, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. But I use my fitness pal and it's kind of the best one that I've found. So yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Perhaps if your only goal is to track your sleep and understand your HRV, then maybe, but like, I've never, praise the Lord, I've never really had an issue with sleep. And so I should have done better research because what I wanted was more of an activity tracker. And what I should have done with that has gone with a whoop band but I can't afford both. And I literally spent $600 on a ring. So I'm going to wait until it breaks. Also, with somebody who lifts and uses her hands a lot, my ring is totally scratched up and annihilated. It's also very hard to lift with this thing on my finger. And when I take it off, it doesn't track any of my heart rate during my workout. And I try to still use it for it, even though it wasn't meant for it. So it's just like, yeah, I'm pretty disappointed with my purchase. We know that we lose muscle as we age and that this loss massively affects our ability to function. Like I'm talking basic tasks here. Muscle is important for protecting our joints and also keeping our metabolism revving. Basically, you want muscle. And unfortunately, a lot of us just don't prioritize muscle maintenance or see it as an importance. And you may also be cringing at the idea of going to the gym and being able to maintain that muscle consistently. Yes, active moving is super good. And there's really nothing like it when it comes to the mood boost of pumping iron. <laughs> 
So when I share about urolithin A, I am not saying just to do this and you can maintain your muscle without movement. Well, like I am saying that because urolithin A does do that, but I think pairing urolithin A with exercise is likely the best path forward. So I started taking a product called MitoPure to boost my performance and improve muscular strength. And MitoPure has 500 milligrams per serving of urolithin A, a postbiotic shown to have major benefits to significantly increasing muscle strength and endurance with no other change in lifestyle. Yes, you heard that right. I just said that it has major benefits to significantly increase muscle strength and endurance with no other change to lifestyle. It gives your body the energy it needs to optimize its cellular power grid through boosted mitochondrial health without changes to lifestyle or diet. Now imagine what it could do with your low carb diet and a walking goal or a lifting goal a couple of times per week. It took me a long time, like a couple of months to introduce MitoPure to my day because it's so strong. Every time I took it, I almost had too much energy, so I really had to titrate up. MitoPure is the first product to offer a precise dose of urolithin A to upgrade mitochondrial function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength and endurance. They've created three ways to get your daily dose of 500 milligrams of urolithin A in their product, MitoPure. They've got a delicious vanilla protein powder that combines muscle building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure. Now this product does contain whey protein. And then they have a berry powder that easily mixes into smoothies or just about any drink. This is dairy-free. And finally, the soft gels, which is what I prefer because it's just easier. This is also dairy-free. I love the starter pack idea though. If you can handle the dairy, the three forms of MitoPure to play around with which which one is your favorite? Top notch. So Timeline, the creators of MitoPure, is putting together a sweet little offer for you, 10% off your first order. So if you go to timelinenutrition.com slash KDP and use the code KDP, you'll get 10% off your order. Again, that's timelinenutrition.com slash KDP. I recommend trying their starter pack with all three formats and picking out your best format. Again, that's timelinenutrition.com nutrition.com slash KDP. Okay, moving on. Next question. Hormonally speaking, women in their 40s, fasted cardio, stress, anything you can offer to shake chronic fatigue? Yeah, stop fasting and stop doing cardio. And if you're stressed, that's probably the source of your chronic fatigue is fasted cardio and stress we should not be doing fasted cardio. We should not even really be doing cardio unless you're like, unless you've done a massive refeed and you're coming off of that refeed and you're being very strategic with your cardio, maybe, but there's really no need for it. If you're like a weekend warrior, not going to the Olympics that you need to be doing this. There was an episode I did in May. It was May 9th with Andrea Jones. The name of it is Understanding Menopause with Andrea Jones. Give that a listen. I think that'll be really helpful to just understand some of the root causes behind adrenal issues, chronic fatigue for women in their 40s, definitely. Okay, next question. Laptop is now at 
37%. Let's keep going. Are you able to work with people who are in Canada? Yes, I am being a Canadian myself. I love working with Canadians. Now it's a little bit tricky because Canada, when it comes to blood work, you know how challenging it is to get a blood work requisition. Unfortunately, I'm unable to create requisitions as I am for those in the United States. I can still create them. It just costs more and it's a little bit of a pain, but it can be done. If you have a doctor that can do blood work, that helps a whole bunch. I can send most test kits, including hair tissue mineral analysis, GI map, all those things. I have a significant amount of resources for supplements in Canada, but again, you are paying for those supplements generally to come from the United States. I do have a couple of resources in Canada, so they're coming from Canada, but it's usually going to cost a little bit more to get some of those products. I have been successful in getting them over the border, which is a total win, but yeah, it we can definitely make it work. It's just going to be a little bit more expensive because you have to pay for shipping and some of the blood work is more expensive unless you can get your doctor and Involved in those sorts of things. Okay, next question. Do you have experience with SIRS from a mold bacteria exposure? Okay, SIRS, let's talk about it. So here's some of the diseases linked to SIRS. It's usually connected with autoimmune, including thyroid issues, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, chemical sensitivity, Hashimoto's, Graves, lupus, mast cell activation, blood disorders, depression, schizophrenia. SIRS is one of those things. So before I talk about my unpopular opinion about SIRS, a lot of people talk about HLA-DR as being part of SIRS. There are ways to diagnose SIRS. All of them usually have an HLA-DR genotype. So HLA-DR testing can be beneficial. It's usually the continual elevation of inflammatory cytokines um, without resolution. That's really the key to SIRS is like, regardless of what you do, the inflammation just keeps on going. And SIRS can be caused by water damage buildings. It can be caused by a tick bite, a spider bite, cicatera, contaminated water. Um, it leaves the nervous system like, or sorry, the immune system in a loop. And it just creates like these endless cytokines. And so a person would be exposed to a biotoxin producing situation, like for example, a water damaged building, and then the biotoxins are recognized and bound by the immune system. Then the biotoxins are then removed from the body through the stool, but it like repeats the process. It keeps going and keeps going. And so in a susceptible person, in somebody that has SIRS, instead of the biotoxins going and being removed from the body through the stool, what will happen in somebody with SIRS is that the biotoxins are not recognized properly by the immune system. They're not removed and they remain in the body indefinitely. And so they cycle through the body. The biotoxins pass from cell to cell and creating cell damage, including like damage to the immune system cells, causing that immune system dysfunction. And it's like this endless loop that just keeps going and going and going. Um, some of the clusters that have to do with this for uh, symptoms is going to have to do with like heightened skin sensitivity, weakness, blurry vision, joint pain, extreme thirst, dizziness, congestion, like sinus issues, shortness of breath, disorientation, uh, deep persistent fatigue, and just, oh, it's, it's terrible. 
So here's like my somewhat unpopular opinion about SIRS. There's a lot of testing and you can spend a whole bunch of time, energy and money determining that you have SIRS. And there's specific subset of people who really need to be removed from the situation. Like if you have SIRS, you need to be removed from the situation that's making you sick. Like if you were exposed to mold and you're still living in that mold, you're not going to get better if you're still living in that mold. And oftentimes the removal of that situation helps a significant amount. And then it's about detoxification slowly for these people. Oftentimes they're super sensitive. I've worked with a handful of SIRS individuals because it is quite rare. They're very sensitive and it takes a really long time, like 18 plus months, if not longer, to really get a handle on things. But I think SIRS, at least recently, like everyone's super afraid of it. Everyone thinks they have it. They're like terrified of it. And they think that all they need to do is treat the SIRS. No, no, no. We need to get to the root cause. So in the case of this question, mold bacteria exposure, are you still being exposed? Because you got to get out of there. So there's some SIRS details for you. Um, the next question was misinformation about PUFAs, nuts and seeds okay, and sun exposure, etc. So I think we're more like talking about what are all the things that are misinformation? <laughs> How much time do you have? Let's go with vaccines. No, I'm kidding. We're not even going to go there. <laughs> Laptops at 20%. We're not going to open up that box. So nuts and seeds. Yeah, man, those are great. So here's the deal. The reason why I don't know a lot about carnivore and I don't really love it super awesome is because I don't want to live in a world where my body's not strong enough to handle basic things that it should be able to handle. Nuts and seeds and plants and beans and all those things being part of it. When I look at how much healthier I am now, eating like a vast array of different things, as opposed to how I was doing when I was able to eat 15 different things because I was sensitive to everything, was not in a good place mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you know? So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't down canola oil or like buy grapeseed oil and keep it in my house or those sorts of things, but... I will definitely eat nuts and seeds raw or maybe even sprouted if I have a ton of time or I've taken a week off to like meal prep, which has never happened. But in my mind, it would be really fun to do. When it comes to sun exposure, ooh, I just read this really interesting article. Um, let me see if I can remember kind of the the gist of it. It was about skin cancer. They separated a group of dogs. Now, granted, this is dogs, but it's really interesting stuff. They separated a group of dogs. Half of the dogs got like really bad food and sun exposure. The other half of the dogs ate really well and had sun exposure. It was something like crazy, like 40% of the dogs that had the bad food and the sun exposure got skin cancer and 0% of the dogs who ate the healthy food and got the same amount of sun exposure got skin cancer. We have to understand that the oxidation rate of the foods that we're eating and what it does in the body influences our relationship to the environment around us. And so I go to the dermatologist once a year to just check things. And every year that dermatologist says, man, your skin is so beautiful for your age. What do you do? <laughs> and my answer is always 20 minutes in the sun every day. High noon. I'm out there sunbathing. I also do some sun exposure in the early morning. If I have the time, very rarely I have the time, but I try. The intention is there. Yeah, simply said is 
food quality loops us right up to the beginning of our conversation around food quality. We have to look at the quality of food that you're eating. This is so important, like epically important to look at the quality. I don't even care if it fits your macros and you're eating garbage. It's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it long term. And you need to ask yourself, why do I care? Like, do you want to stay on this planet for as long as possible? Probably the answer is going to be yes. I mean, there are certain days of my cycle where I'm like, no, (laughs) right? Um, But like 27 days out of the month, I want to be here and I'm happy to be here. And if it means, you know, spending an extra 30 cents on organic kale, as opposed to a big old bag of keto cereal. I mean, in some cases, oh my gosh, that keto cereal is so expensive. Don't attack my Catalina Crunch though. This is my guilty pleasure. There's probably glyphosate in it. It's probably terrible for me, but this is my treat. So we need to have that balance too. And for everyone, that balance is different. And I've come out of a significant amount of sickness. And so I'm able to handle those traits and it feels good in my body and everything's okay. But you might not be in a place where you're able to do that yet. And that's okay. And so, yeah, I think you need to just look at things broadly and understand Like at the end of the day, every thought you think, every meal you eat, every glass of water that you drink is impacting you either positively or negatively. And I think so many of us know that the certain things that we're doing are not healthy. Like I shouldn't be sitting here at 8.30 p.m. in the dark recording a podcast. I'm doing it because I have a responsibility to give you guys content and I'm here and I made that decision. Is it great for me? No, I'll probably pay for it later, but we're here, we're doing it. And so I'm not gonna finish this conversation, sit on the couch and eat a bag of popcorn because that would be a terrible idea, right? So we need to like add up, kind of think of your life in columns, right? The good, the bad, the not so great and make sure that overall on a daily basis, most of it is good. If you are waking up and you're in a bad mood and then you continue that mood and you're just grouchy and then you pick up, some fast food on the way with some Starbucks. And you're just like, I mean, these are all not so great things, right? So try not to let all the rules kind of dictate where you go, but also understand your body and the responsibility you have to take care of it. So um, we actually got through all the questions. We had some technology issues that hopefully you won't even see or hear by the time you get today's episode. So really excited to share this with you. And I hope you have a great rest of your week. I'll see you back here next Tuesday for another episode of the Keto Diet Podcast. Bye. Thanks for listening. Join us next Tuesday for another episode of the Keto Diet Podcast. Looking for more resources? Go to healthfulpursuit.com for keto meal plans, weight loss programs, low-carb recipes, and oodles of free resources to get you going. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, recipes, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor is it to be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representation or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program. 